you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We're going to continue our study of John's gospel this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 37, which we read and discussed also last week. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. John 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Would your spirit be pleased to work with your word open, shaping our hearts, Lord, showing us division that exists even in our own souls about who you are, Christ. Would we see you more clearly and love you more dearly? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Early in Luke's gospel, we read incredible things. How can you not deeply treasure Luke chapter 2? It's so full of warm moments. A decree going out, moving people around, and placing the, the mother and father right where they're supposed to be. Sending them by the divine hand to Bethlehem. Mary giving birth to a baby boy. Wrapping him in swaddling cloth, lying him in a manger. We read the warm story of shepherds watching the fields at night and then glory, an angel coming and then a whole host of angels, a whole army of them 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think sometimes we read to, to the peace part and no further. We don't read that last tagline, among those with whom he, that is Christ, is pleased. We continue reading warm realities. The shepherds go and see Jesus. They worship him. We read that Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. Of course she did. What an incredible scene. We read through their obedience to the law. On the eighth day, they take Jesus to the temple for his circumcision. And there's Simeon, who is old, but who was promised that he would see the Messiah in his lifetime with his own eyes, takes Jesus up, up in his arms. Here, this old man, what a, what a great scene. He's just been waiting to see Jesus. Takes him up in his arms and is holding this baby. And then there's some cold water on this warm scene. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Appointed for the rise and fall of nations, a sign that is here that is going to be violently opposed, a sword piercing the soul of his mother. One day she would see him die on a Roman gibbet. Thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Have you ever held a baby in your arms? I suspect many of us here have done that. What a warm and gracious thing to, to do. What a, what a blessing that is. And with all that warmth, then why, Simeon, are you coming out with this prophecy like this? Here's why. Jesus was then and continues to be today one of the most, if not the most, I would say the most divisive human in history. No one else, in fact, even comes close. The promise of peace on earth is a real promise, but peace to believers in the now and the ultimate peace in the not yet. To this promise we hear from Jesus himself in Matthew 10, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come, not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own house. Jesus came bringing a sword, division, nation against nation, but also family, fathers and sons, Mothers and daughters, these close bonds that we think of and deeply appreciate. He says, I'm going to divide families. He isn't talking about families having dis disagreements about various issues in the family life. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about them being divided on social issues. 
He's saying that he will be the cause of division. He himself will divide families. And we see the reality of this in families across the landscape of church history as the gospel is going out in all its beauty throughout Acts. We see this very reality. The gospel goes out. It it is proclaimed. The apostolic message is exploding across the landscape. And as it does, people believe. Their lives are transformed by grace. And at the same time, people hate it. They seek to kill and destroy this message. Some even said, this is turning our world upside down. We've had enough of this gospel stuff. It's making things crazy. It's a huge contrast in the scriptures. We ended last week hearing this great invitation of Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And we left hanging with this this question over what do we do with an invitation like this? I wonder what the crowds are going to do with an invitation like this from the lips of Jesus at this feast. He's saying, look around. This is all about me. All the water that is poured out is actually me. That It's all me, he says. And you can come to me and drink. So I wonder how they're going to deal with that. Jesus knew very well he was dealing with spiritually thirsty people, just like we have today. He knew that people cannot save themselves and are dying for the lack of a Messiah. If you don't have this Messiah, you will die. He he was claiming to be the only source of life to quench that thirst. He was offering not only to quench their thirst, but then from the person who drinks from their belly is going to come rivers of living water. The spirit is going to come from you. It's really a beautiful invitation. And he said all of this to a hostile crowd. How do you think this people will react? Division. Division. What I want us to notice about the division presented in this text is the division is focused on the question, who is Jesus? Chapter 7 has been asking that question and answering it all along. And it's the same is true here. If we believe that Jesus is from God, the second person of the Trinity, that he came to live perfectly in our place, to die the death that we utterly deserved and conquers death and glorious resurrection, to save sinners from sin, death, hell. This is a divisive message. Cuts. It cuts families, it cuts societies, it cuts deeply here. This isn't a trivial Jesus. You see, a trivial Jesus is not really divisive. A Jesus that is built around self-help, not divisive. That Jesus isn't calling anyone thirsty. He's not telling anyone, hey, you're dying of thirst. And you need to drink of me. No, this is is a confrontation. This says something about our spiritual reality and about who he is. 
As long as Jesus is just a slogan, he will have no bearing on people's lives. However, we see with this invitation of Jesus, there are really only two options. You believe in him, submitting to his invitation, coming to him to freely drink and have life, or you reject him and die of spiritual thirst. He is no slogan. In this text, we'll have division among the people and division among the leaders. Let me reread that first paragraph. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of the people. We have to know that largely those who would have been at this feast would have been unified in a few key ways. They were religious They were devout. That is why they are attending the feast. They are here in obedience to God to commemorate this feast as a memorial. They had so much in common. I want us to see what divides them when it says some of the people. It's it's not other kinds of division. They are divided about him. There isn't a Jew-Gentile division here with certainty that existed in this day. But here, they're not divided on Israel's stance on Roman rule or all these other things that, that could divide the people. Largely, they would have been united in the basics. It's not a secular or religious divide. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That's their first guess. And if you notice there, it uses the article, the, and capital P, prophet. It's because they're thinking of something specific. They're not just saying here, Jesus is just another prophet. They're likely, at a feast like this, they're thinking about Israel's past, likely the text that we heard Demiron read earlier, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. They had that in the, in the back of their mind, swirling around all the time. There's coming this great prophet that speaks the words of God himself, not just any other prophet, the prophet. Some are like, could that be him? Others said, this is the Christ. We aren't told here that this is a genuine expression of faith, such as Peter's profession but more speculation within the divided crowd. Could this be? And then it's quickly doused again with cold water. No, the Messiah is not from Galilee. By the way, Galilee stands as a slur throughout this text. 
It's a slur here. It's a slur when used by the leaders. Could you be as as out of the way as, as one of those people? And that should be a challenge in all of our hearts as we think about what's going on in our society. Are, are we ever like that? Let's check our hearts. Is that in us? Especially as we hear things like these racially motivated shootings. Are we ever like that? Is this impulse in us? It's going to say it again in the, in the next paragraph. Are you a Galilean too? Is there anybody in our heart that thinks of the other as as disdain. And they think they know. Isn't, isn't the Messiah, we, he's from Galilee, he's from Nazareth, he's a redneck, and we know that Jesus is coming from the kingly town of Bethlehem, the city of David. That's where kings come from. John loves irony, doesn't he? He's giving us all this in an ironic way, and he's not stopping to correct them. He's not adding an editorial note. By the way, Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't do that. He just keeps moving, showing how this division works. In verse 43, we read, there was a division among the people. The Greek word here is schisma, and in it you can hear our word schism. It's a rip. It's a rending. It's a dividing. There's a party, a faction, a falling apart, a tearing confusion about who Jesus is. And this division is rooted in theology. Who is God? Who is Christ? What is he going to be when he comes? Some say a prophet. Others say this Messiah. Others are looking for a king, right? He's supposed to be coming from Bethlehem. We used this larger catechism a couple of weeks ago to affirm our faith. Why is our mediator called the Christ? He's called the Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the the, the offices of prophet, priest, and king in his church. They're like whack-a-mole, like pick, a, pick apart. Which one is he? Which one am I anticipating? And th- this statement in our confession says this. He's all of them. He's every single thing that we need. We need a prophet. We need a priest. And we need a king. And Jesus is all of them. I think there are a few ways that they were off about Jesus, deeply so. You see, the crowd puts too much stock in conventional thinking of the day. They want out of the Messiah what they want. And so they're looking for him to fit their mold. We know this kind of thinking is dangerous when it comes to Jesus. We cannot put him in our mold. We cannot make him fit all of our expectations. We need to let him set the expectation. What does it look like for him to be our savior? Some of us, I think sometimes we want salvation to look a certain way. 
They wrongly understood the life of Christ and the scriptures, and they used the scriptures to justify their unbelief. Did you notice that? They used the scriptures. And in using the scriptures, they utterly missed the reality of Jesus' life. We know that the Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. He's clearly not from Bethlehem, so he's not it. I often hear many in our day do this exact same thing. They assume realities about who Jesus Christ is. They assume when they hear him say something that it fits something that they like to hear. They use the scriptures to reject Jesus. We saw this reality last week. Familiarity breeds contempt. They know him too well to ever believe in him. We should be very cautious to reject people and places based on appearances. All those things were going on in the people, but the real issue was hardness of heart. You have to remember the context. Jesus had spoken plainly an incredible truth and gave an invitation to come to him, to drink, to find nourishment for their thirsty souls. And the reason they don't do it is because they have hard hearts. Come to me, says Jesus. Yet unbelief does the exact opposite. It moves away from him. It runs from Jesus in obscuring who he is and what he came to do. Listen, Grace Prez, we still have the invitation in front of us to come to Jesus, to drink. Spiritually thirsty people can come and drink of Jesus. I think this is a lesson the issue is not information. It is not that they needed a book on apologetics. This could apply to those of us who are in this room or those of us who want to share Christ with others on the mission of, of Jesus. Listen, sometimes the issue is not information. It's not have somebody read this book or watch this great uh, evangelistic and apologetic video. Are those things appropriate at times? Sure they are. But I would say way more the issue is the issue of the heart. You will never argue anyone into the kingdom. You're not going to do it. Jesus, he just shared facts. All of this is about me. And you, if you're thirsty, come to me. You drink, you believe in me. I will quench your thirst. And in fact, from you, rivers of living water will flow. If you receive that invitation, it's because your heart receives that invitation. We can clearly present Christ crucified and risen to save sinners, and yet people will still walk away claiming he's just a good man. He was an invention of the early church. He actually wasn't God until the Council of Nicaea claimed that he was. Or I, I like Jesus. Jesus is a good social reformer. We need another one like him today to fix 
our social ears uh, ails or he's a guru or he's a holy man. Listen, division about the person of Christ did not stop here. It continues. It exists greatly in our day. And this division about him is not neutral. Verse 44 says that they want to arrest him. So this is one of the, one of the groups that John is giving us here. These crowds want him arrested. What's the deal with that? This hostility and, and they want him arrested and eventually they want him dead. Do they want him punished? Is that, is that the deal? They just want to see him hurt? That maybe, but I think the, the greater part of it is they want Jesus to go away. He is upsetting things. If they could take an eraser to Jesus' life and just erase him, they would do it. He's upsetting things. They want him to go away. And here we see that it's not just a division among the people who, who largely have no voice or ability to, to act on it, but there's also division in the elite and the leaders of the day. So Jesus is teaching in the temple and the Pharisees have had enough. Remember back in verse 32, we already saw them uh, put out an arrest warrant on Jesus. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. There's a warrant out. Officers on the way. Chief priests reached their limits already. And they would send the temple police, the temple guard to arrest Jesus. And in this next scene, we have that guard returning to the Pharisees and the chief priests empty-handed. I want us to notice again, sometimes we lump all these people together. Like this, this is just one big group that kind of... Uh, they were united in everything and united against Jesus and they killed him. Well, they are united against Jesus, but these are not united factions. The chief priests and the Pharisees generally do not get along well. They see the world very differently. The Pharisees would have looked at the chief priests as the elite and kind of airheaded when it came to the law. And the chief priests would look at the Pharisees as well, pharisaical. Like all you guys do is study the law. They were a divided group. And let, yet look at how Jesus unites them. So when we read these different factions, we don't need to lump them all in except one area, who they think Jesus is. They hate him. Their power structure is being threatened by this man. Notice what they say. Why did you not bring him? The officers answered. No one ever spoke like this man. Calvin notes those officers acknowledged that they were subdued and vanquished by the word of Christ. End quote. He conquered them. In every single instance of his life, Jesus wins the struggle. He struggles a lot. I'm not saying he had an easy life, but until it was his time or his hour, every single time he's going to win, he's going to get away. It's not until he allows it that they will be able to take him. He wins every time. And that should be a clue to us when they do actually get him. It's because he 
knows that it's his time. He's in charge. Text doesn't say that the officers are believers, but they heard him speak. They, they came, Jesus was teaching in the temple, so they go and they listen to him talk, and they themselves are arrested, captive by Jesus. Remember the crowd after the Sermon on the Mount? The text says they marveled because he spoke as one who has authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He utterly captured them. They couldn't arrest him. They heard him teach and they went back and said, no. What would it must be like to, to refuse an order like that? Imagine officers coming back to the DA and the chief of police saying, hey, we went to get this guy. But then we heard him talk. There's no way we're, we're going to execute that warrant. We're not going to do it. Obviously, it angered the Pharisees. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Have any of us from the upper echelon, sure, he's leading some of the crowd astray, but has anybody with any real power or real clout gone after Jesus? You hear them put themselves above the crowd, separate from the masses who were viewed as ordinary, pedestrian. In this accusation of the officers is a social slight. You've been taken in. You're just like them. They don't even know the law and are uneducated, and in fact, they're cursed, and you want to be like them. Nobody in their right mind would follow Jesus. Who do you think you are? In some circles, we still hear and see these same realities. Jesus is viewed as a joke, and to believe in him, you are pedestrian. You are easily taken in. You're uneducated. Easily dismissed without ever getting to the substance of who Jesus is. The thought goes something like this. Nobody who is academically proficient or socially relevant can actually believe in this Jesus. Who do you think you are? Officers, peons, you're just like the crowds. Do you see any of us believing in him? The same sentiment exists in our world today. But that's okay. Be encouraged, child of God. Their critique is based being based on education and class is utterly off. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We're told this again and again and again. They will think it folly. And Paul says that to think the word of Christ is folly is to perish, it's to die. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. It goes on, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We should not be surprised that the gospel looks foolish to some in our world. We should lament that they are dying as a result. Belief in Christ, listen closely, is not anti-intellectual. It is not. It definitely involves information. It involves the mind. But you cannot reason your way into the kingdom of God. Social standing is not enough. Educational pedigree is not enough. To their larger point, knowing more about the law is not enough. These groups will come together and they will be complicit, even in their knowledge, complicit in the death of Christ. What happens next is interesting. Again, into our story comes Nicodemus. How is this going to resolve itself for the are the officers going to be in huge trouble? It says Nicodemus is on the scene again when we're reminded of the last time he was on the scene back in John chapter 3. He's a Pharisee. And he came to Jesus. He's very curious about the Lord. He came to him with questions. Hey, hey, tell me about how this stuff worked. Who are you? And, and they had this great conversation that we walked through. Here he's on the scene again in his official capacity. Here he's a lawyer, he's a Pharisee, so he's in the inner circle and figuring out what to do. And then we read this, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before. He's got some proximity to Jesus and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? so interesting. John is, again, I love him because he's so full of irony. Their accusation against the guards is that they don't know the law. What is Nicodemus's critique? The law? Hey, those guys out there, those crowds and you officers, you don't know the law and you're accursed. And Nicodemus says, wait, isn't there something in our law about how we're supposed to arrest someone? It's really remarkable. Deuteronomy chapter 1, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between man and his brother or the alien who is with him. 19.18, also of Deuteronomy, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is false, a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You can't just arrest somebody without learning first exactly what they're teaching, without giving them a hearing, and Nicodemus intervenes and says, you guys can't do that. You're accusing others of not knowing the law, and you don't know the law. That's what's so interesting. It's fascinating. Calvin says Nicodemus here has some small spark of godliness shining from his heart. I think he's right. Again, it's not fully orbed here. But God is doing something in Nicodemus. We'll meet him again near the end. So he exposes this gap of knowledge 
in the law of the Pharisees. Rather than agree with his pious advice, they reply again dismissively, like you can see him sneer, are you also from Galilee? They know he's not. They know he's his pedigree. This is again a slur. Are you also one of those? And then they go, they go further. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, John is wanting to show us irony. There are actually prophets who come from Galilee. Pretty famous one, Jonah, hails from Galilee. Also Nahum, both of them from that region. It's so interesting that their critique, the nature of their critique is you don't know the law, you're getting sucked in, and they reveal that they don't know the law. They don't know where the prophets come from. It's fascinating. How do we unpack this for us? John is showing us these two groups crowds and how they respond to Jesus and these categories of people, those who are close to the faith, those who are a bit farther away, and those who are far, far outside the pale of receiving Christ. I guess the first question is this, are you surprised when people don't respond well to the gospel? Are you shocked? You have a conversation with a loved one, with a family friend, and it ends with them blowing up, mad at you, damaging your relationship. Does that surprise you? When you have talked to a coworker or someone in the world about the claims of Christ and you see them get angry, are you surprised? You shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Christ is and always has been divisive. Next, do you know that there absolutely will be a cost, a social cost for following Christ? This humble invitation of Jesus is for us to take on this humility. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ in a world deeply divided over who he is? Being a Christian does not mean that life will be easier. It does not. Becoming a Christian in our world means that life will inevitably be harder, yet more full of joy, more full of hope, more full of truth and light and life, but not easier. Lastly, what is our response to Jesus' invitation? Are we drawn in to debates? When the identity of Jesus is on the line, are we drawn in to these side debates about morality, politics? rich, poor, educated, uneducated, before we ever really reckon with who Jesus is and what he has done. Where are our hearts in relation to this gorgeous invitation of our Lord? Be, in, be encouraged 
child of God, nothing will stop the advance of the church. There will always be those who believe. Calvin says this, we'll end with this quote, and we often have found that whatever contrivances our enemy have made to extinguish the gospel, yet by the amazing kindness of God, it immediately fell powerless to the ground. You will never, ever, ever stop Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though this world is divided over you, would you shape our hearts, our lives, our minds, our souls around the truth of who you are. And may we speak that truth to a deeply divided world. Lord, forgive us if there's any part of us that has a slur against someone in our society. Would you reveal that? Thank you, Jesus, that you know what that's like, that you have walked there first. In all these things we pray in Christ's name, amen.